0: Is that right? Can everybody hear me? Okay, this is interesting, doing worship and doing preach. Not very good at multitasking, so the first half went kind of okay, so let's just see how the second half goes. (coughs) Um, Today we're continuing on in the uh, series that we started last week. Um, For all those who are maybe visiting today or who weren't here last week, we started a new series that's called uh, Facing Adversity, Learning the Qualities of Kingship Within the Psalms. And the main focus is that we're basically going through the lives of three kings, through uh, Saul, uh, David, and Absalom, but we're going through them in a, in a different way. Other than just understanding the stories, we're actually going through the Psalms that reflect certain instances that they happen to these kings. And it's all through the eyes of David, as David wrote most of the Psalms. So it's David's percep- perception of these three kings throughout his life. And we spoke about his time with, uh, when he fled from Saul, in Psalm 57, and that was last week. And today we're coming to uh, the story of David and Absalom. Now, when I um, was thinking about this uh, a while ago, and I was like, uh, the story of Absalom really was interesting to me, because I haven't heard very many uh, preachers done on on Absalom. And I thought, well, this this would be quite interesting. And my wife, Candace, she um, watches uh, the Bible, uh, Old Testament, she has like a movie of it, and it sort of skips Absalom. It just deals with Saul. And so I'm going to Washes over him. And I thought, well, that's a bit of a shame because there's actually a lot we can learn from him. Um, and actually, if you look at the, the book of 2 Samuel, it has 24 chapters, and six of those chapters are dedicated to Absalom and David. So a quarter of the book. So I thought, well, well, that means that it's something worthwhile we can get from it. So we're not going to be able to study it in depth as such because it's such a vast uh, story. Um, but I want to give you an understanding. If you're not familiar with Absalom, then I'm kind of going to give you a uh, whistle-stop tour. I'm going to miss out some details. so if all, Some of you here are thinking, oh, you did mention this, you did mention that. Well, I'm sorry, but um, I can't mention everything. <laughs> but um, if you are interested, I do really ask, you know, you start, it's, it mainly goes from uh, 2 Samuel chapter 13 all the way to 2 Samuel chapter 19. So if you really want to understand it more, it's better to come to grips with reading those pieces of scripture. So I just want to give you a wi- little whistle-stop tour. So Absalom is actually David's, uh, King David's son. Uh, he's uh, his third oldest son, and he's sort of renowned very much well by Israel. They sort of think very highly of him. He sort of thought he's I don't know why, but he's, you know his hair is commented to be long and flowing hair, and that seems to be quite I think a good thing in those sort of cultures, um, each to their own. <laughs> but yeah, so he was he was thought a lot by um, the different people in Israel at the time. But a certain incident happened that he believed that his father, King David, didn't handle properly. So because, and because he, didn't, he believed he didn't handle it properly, he basically took matters into his own hands, which ended up him actually murdering his brother. And that sort of like, and that obviously produced such a rift between him and his father. And once that sort of rift happened, he decided that, you know, you, we start in chapter 13, towards the end of it, he has to flee from Jerusalem Not because necessarily that he thought that David was out to kill him, but maybe he thought that David wanted vengeance on him. So he actually fled for up to three years. And eventually he returned after some negotiation with David. And he returned back to Jerusalem. And and by the end of chapter 14, you kind of think, oh, the relationship has kind of got better. It's restored to some extent. But the more you go into the chapter, you'll find out that actually it was far from it. Absalom in his heart was rebellious towards his father. And he would often sit at the city gates, it says in uh, chapter 14, and he would often, like, try and deal with people's problems and say, oh, if only there was a judge in the land that could deal with your problems. Uh, of course, he wasn't referring to wanting to go back to the times of judges, but obviously he was basically saying, you know, why would you want me as your king? Pick me. Why would you want my father, David? So this rebellion kind of happened and he wanted to turn people away from David. And actually, if you get to the end of the chapter 14, you actually realise that it says the hearts of Israel were turned towards Absalom. And there comes a point in chapter 15 where he goes away to Hebron, uh, where they crown him as king. And the news gets back to David. Says, oh, they crowned your son as king, there's a rebellion that's going to happen. And, then, and when David hears this, his only response is that he must once again flee from Jerusalem, knowing that he will have to settle things with his son, but not through uh, military force at that time. So he runs from him. And as he runs from his son, he takes some of his servants with him, and he comes to a point, and he looks back over the, at Jerusalem, and, he, and he's weeping. Weeping like maybe thinking, like, you know, how could I have got to this place with my own son, when I, you know, when I was only, this is a similar circumstance, just a few, like, how many years ago, when I wasn't even king, and I was running from Saul, and now I'm running from my own son. And when he runs, he writes the psalm that we're coming to today, Psalm three. He writes the psalm in anguish and anxiety. He writes the psalm when he's feeling that all everything is against him, even his own people that he once called him king have now turned against him. So, if you've got a Bible, um, let's turn to Psalm three. Once again, we're going to be taking the majority of our text from Psalm three, so it's quite good to have it in front of you. So, if you if you want a Bible, please put up your hand, but if not, um, the words will be on the screen anyway. So, let's read this together. <coughs> o Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Salvation belongs to the Lord, your blessings being your people. Amen. And when I came to this, I thought, you know, usually I like to kind of come up with a title for a preach because it kind of makes things a little bit easier. You can kind of base things all around it. And I thought, what could I use from this psalm that would demonstrate something that would be useful for us today, but also not taken away from what David was writing in the first place? And I came up with things, and I sent a few things to Dave, and so this is, I is I'm kind of on this sort of line, so he said, oh, great. So he came up with sort of thoughts. And a day later, I was like, no, I'll come up with some other thoughts. And then finally, I settled on this one thing, and I think this is really good for us today. So the title, I guess we could say, as Dave said earlier, is uh, Demonstrating Love in Adversity. And why have I chosen that? Well, in Psalm 57, love is quite a, a popular word. Well, we used it last week. Love is, you know, my steadfast love. We use it quite a lot. And when you get to Psalm 3, they're very similar psalms. In fact, when I was actually planning this sermon, I was kind of really worried that I was going to end up repeating a lot, vast amount of what I said last week. So it was pretty difficult. But love doesn't seem to be mentioned in Psalm 3. But I think the more you dig under the surface, we actually see that's actually very key to it. And ultimately, I think where I really want to go with this is when we talk about demonstrating love in adversity, the real question is, how does God demonstrate his love to us in adversity? And how do we demonstrate our love to God in adversity? And those are kind of the angles that we're going to take today to give you a heads up. So I first want to deal with, how does God demonstrate his love for us in adversity? Well, we're going to work our way through the psalm uh, verse by verse, and hopefully this will make it easier. So the first way that God reveals His demonstrates His love, is that he brings comfort and protection in adversity. And this is basically seen within uh, verses 1 to 4. So we've already done like an introduction to the psalm, but the psalm kind of has its own introduction. It so, Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him that is in God. David's at this point saying all the people that once thought he was the the greatest king and now hurling insults at him, all the people that were kind of a larger extended family, if you like, and now shouting things, saying that he's basically been abandoned by God, stepped out of the will of God and of the purposes, and basically God's abandoned him. And I thought, how often do we actually feel ourselves that the people who are actually the closest to us seem to be the people who can hurt us the most? And we and we hurl insults and we have insults thrown at us. And David had this, but as we can see, it's from not only from just any Tom, Dick, and Harry; it's from his actual own son. But I love how he kind of continues on into into verse three. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I love it. It starts with a but. You know, Always do good things. I don't really, you know, put any much about hermeneutics so I didn't when I first started theology. But but studying scripture, it is really interesting. You think, okay, what does the but symbolize? Well, it's symbolizing this. Before God he's put talking about people's perception of him and people's ideas of him, and now he's saying, Right, that's what they think, but this is what God thinks. And sometimes we have to do that. We have people hurling insults at us, hurling different abuse at us, maybe putting us down, maybe disappointing us. But we have to come back to what is God's. And he continues, but God, you are a shield about me. And I really thought this was really great when I heard the word shield. So I thought, if we compare this to Psalm 57 that we were studying last week, he talks about God being his resting and his hiding place. And that's and now he's talking about him being his shield. And the two kind of symbolize the same thing in a sense, don't they? They symbolize security and protection. I hide in God's, he is my protection. He is my refuge and my strength. We've got up up here. I can't see it, but we haven't we, somewhere. He is my refuge and my strength. But there's something else that God is. He's actually our shield. And the difference, I think, between a a refuge and a shield is basically a refuge is somewhere where you can go away and hide and God protects you, but a shield is something that you have in the midst of battle, isn't it? And I think sometimes we can hide and we can take away ourselves from adversity, but sometimes there isn't an opportunity to get away, is there? We just have to bear with it, and we have to walk through it. And God is our shield and our protection from that. And the more I thought about this, I thought, wow, that's, that's so fantastic. But, you know, a lot of us don't feel protected at times, do we? We can feel vulnerable. We can feel weak. And I think when David wrote this psalm, he was probably writing it in a literal sense, that God would protect him, his physical body, when it comes to w- waging war against his son. But actually, he was talking about spiritual life as well he wanted god to be a shield to protect him in his in spiritual sense in his relationship to others in his relationship with his friends with his family and we not be we may not be facing adversity in a sense that threatens our lives but we do face adversity that threatens relationships with our friends and with our family and with people further afield don't we and sometimes we can feel weak but, da- but David says that God is still his protection and not just in front of him but all around in front, behind or wherever we go God is always there there is security and I love how he says it how he kind of moves on from then so I cried out to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill and see once he recognised that God was his shield he still cried out to God and sometimes we need to do that. We need to cry out to God to be our protection in times of trouble. To look after us when we feel weak. To look after us when we feel vulnerable. Not only does God hear them, our prayers, but he answers them. And I think that was just, yeah, the most amazing thing. He knew that his God is a personal God. And that's one of the greatest things if you're not a Christian here today, is if you look at different religions in the world, Christianity, I mean obviously I'm kind of biased because I believe in God and Jesus, but if you look at it as another way, you can see actually, if you look at all the religions, Jesus is the only God that is personal. Personal in the sense that he steps down into our lives, personal in the sense that he answers our prayers, personal in the sense that he came down and died and rose again and wants relationship with us. And you don't get that in any other religion. Christianity is ultimately about a personal relationship and David knew that his God is personal. So in the midst of our times and struggles, God demonstrates his love by protecting us. The next point I want to add is that he enables our confidence to grow in adversity. We scroll down to verse 5. I lay down and slept. I woke up again for the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. I think this is also a really key verse as well. That David knew that he had such security and confidence in God that he could even sleep in the midst of his anxiety. And why could he sleep? Why did he have this confidence? Well, it says, I woke again for the Lord sustained me. In other words... God had already done it for him before and he knew that because God had done it for him before, he could have confidence that God would do it again and I think that's to be so true for us today That I wrote it down because I knew this was a good line I shouldn't forget it his, this is with David, his past experience gave him confidence in the present and I think that should be the case but so often it's not I'll tell you a story, Like it's, some of you might know, uh, Candice and I my wife and I got married in South Africa and when we left when I left for South Africa we had next to we had next to no money basically Uh, we did uh, missionary work beforehand and we had no finances Uh, we managed just to scrape by for our wedding and when we got married we were like oh this is you know it's great married life is awesome and then we're like right well now we've got to kind of figure out how we're going to get back to England because we had no money we had no job and no money and basically, people who usually support us have already given money to our wedding. So what do we do? Well, a few weeks before our wedding, we went to a jeweller's and we got our wedding rings. And they cost about <coughs> um, 7,000 rand. So we raised about 700 pounds around that sort of time. sort of money. And uh, we paid for it, because obviously we need, these were essentials for our wedding, and we needed to get married. And we got them, and it came to the point where we needed to get back home to England and we didn't know how we were going to get back home and we looked in our account and we were like, oh, we have 700 extra pounds in our account. How on earth did that happen? So I was like, well, let's just get the tickets because, you know, let's get you home. And Kansas was like, no, 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 we can't do that because, you know, it could be stealing. So I was like, oh, do what she does, you know. So being a good husband that I was, um, I said, okay, we'll go back, we'll give the money back, maybe we'll just have to swim back to England, I don't know how we're going to get back. But actually, anyway, we... We went back to the store and we said, we bought these rings from you about two weeks ago, but the money hasn't come out of our account, and we want to make sure that you've definitely got it. And they said, okay, let us check our records. So they checked their records, and they said, oh, the money's come into our account, so you don't have to worry about it. And we said, oh, are you sure? And they said, yeah, it's completely fine. The money's come into our account. So I kind of said, well, you've got to phone your HSBC and find out. So I phoned HSBC, which is really annoying to do if you've ever done it abroad, phoning your bank for England. It's really irritating. So I phoned HSBC and they were like, no, no money's come out of your account at all. You've not been credited, nothing's been sent overseas, nothing's done nothing. So, okay, wow. So, and we went to uh, Emirates the next day and we bought a ticket for my wife, and without a light, it was literally about maybe within her tickets about £2 to get my wife back to the UK. So that was a past experience that technically, you would have thought, and they should have, but it gave me confidence. And when I would next face financial difficulties, I could go back and say, ah, God did this for me. So therefore I can trust that he's going to do this for me now. But that's not the case. I'm I'm sorry to say that wasn't the case. I still struggle. We still struggle financially as a family. And we lose sight of the amazing things God done in our past. And I think sometimes we need... We all struggle with different things and different adversities, but there's things that have happened to us in the past. God has proven to be faithful. But it's almost like it's fallen off our radar and we've forgotten it. And we go through struggles. I mean, it could be finances. It could be struggles with our kids. It could be putting food on the table. And miracles in the past just seem to stay in the past. But actually, David was using his past experience to give him confidence in God today. And I think sometimes we have to do that together. And there are things that we have to remember today. Maybe there's some of us here today, you need to remember what God did for you years ago. That's right. Maybe it's in your relationships, and your families, maybe it's within your marriages, maybe it's within your work. We have to remember these. The next point, so I speak about what God does for us. So the next point I want to kind of move on to is, how do we demonstrate our love to God in adversity? This moves me on to the very last verse, Verse 8. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessings be on your people. Sorry. <clears throat> and I think this is really significant. Ultimately he's saying that salvation belongs to God. So in a sense he's saying the battle belongs to God. It belo- it's all God's. But then he ends with this last verse, which I, I kind of think is going to be the key verse. If you're going to remember mostly anything from the sermon today, remember this. Your blessings be on your people. Why is that significant? Well, I believe because it's the last blessing that he gives. And he, in his last line of his psalm, of his painful psalm that he's writing to people, he's playing, praying in a sense of blessing over the people that are persecuting him. Even though the, that the fruition of that blessing will mean that they will be defeated in battle. His thoughts are actually with the people who are actually standing against him. And I think all too often, In our walk as Christians, we can look at the Psalms and we can look at other things and we think God had little pity for people who were going against Israel, people who were (coughs) trying to destroy them. But actually, if that's our view of Scripture, we need to kind of look at it again and understand that's not quite how it's put. In fact, it's not how it's put at all. There is justice, yes, but we need to fully understand it better. And I've got two bits of Scripture that I want to just share with you. It's Proverbs 24... 17 to 18, in Ezekiel thirty-three, eleven. The first one says, Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and not <coughs> let your heart be glad when he stumbles, and l- l- at least the Lord d- is be displeased and turn away his anger from him. And the second bit from Ezekiel, saying to them, As surely as I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked will turn from his way and live, turn back, turn back from your evil ways. see david was recognizing at that time that his son was against him these people were against him but he was praying a blessing over them and i think that's what i want to kind of bring in this morning is that we need to be praying for those who are giving us adversity you know often when we talk about adversity and (coughs) the reason why we (coughs) sometimes want people to we want to go around back on people you know, often we talk about an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Well, that technically isn't just within the Bible, in a sense, is it? Because that's kind of how society views life, isn't it? If someone strikes me back, I'm going to strike them back. In fact, I was at college uh, the other day, and this made me laugh. One of my, one of the, my, I have a few friends that I live on campus at Morlands, and one of the guys, he's, uh, he he's, must be a very light sleeper, bless him, and, he's, and he goes to sleep quite early, he goes to sleep at like nine o'clock, and uh, he went to bed at nine, and uh, the girls were in the dorm was just above him, and they were keeping him up, banging on the ceiling, talking, I don't know, probably not doing much, but he was just irritating him. And he kind of got to a point where he was so frustrated, and eventually he managed to get to sleep. And then my other friend said he heard this noise at 4.30 in the morning. So he came in, it was coming from this guy's room, so he came in, and, he, and this guy was sat in there, without a doubt, with his bongo drum, banging it far away, just... <laughs> And he, my friend, says, what on earth are you doing? And he says, well, you know what it says? I have to restrict my revenge. An eye for an eye and a sleep for a sleep. I'm going to get my revenge. <laughs> and sometimes, it's a light-hearted thing, but sometimes we want to get our revenge on people because that's the way we're kind of, our, our nature is in a sense. But we can easily reflect this back into Jesus, which we're going to do now in the Sermon on the Mount. That, that's not what his instruction is for us. So I want to move on to how do we demonstrate our love towards others? Because in the similar amount, Jesus has kind of, has two focuses about loving people. It's loving ourselves within a congregation and loving others in terms of loving our enemy. So let's first deal with how are we meant to love others? How are we meant to love our enemies? What has Jesus got to say about that? This is all in chapter 5 and we see in verse 44 that we are meant to pray for those who persecute us. (laughs) Jesus calls us not to retaliate but to love those who persecute us. Again, you may, feel perse- you may not necessarily feel persecuted but you may feel disappointed. You may feel let down. It could be by people who are close to you, by people who are far away. And often when we've heard this word love, we're like, how can I possibly love someone? And I think that sometimes it's because we associate love and like as the same thing. Or love and like are two very different things. Believe it or not, we actually we can actually love someone without liking them. Bear with me for a minute. <laughs> it's good that we went to... Sometimes, the guy says probably the other way it's going to look like I'm saying something really bad. Sometimes we, we can't be called to like everyone because that depends on so many different factors. Our personal like relationship to them, what they do to us, what they haven't done to us. But love in the New Testament is a verb, it's a doing word. So Even if you don't particularly like someone or find something difficult you're still called to love them and that's hard isn't it how do we love people when people give us hard times and struggles how do we look at it how do we view life well i think there's a few ways that jesus kind of helps us bless them that curse you in other words reply to a bitter word with kind words Do good to them that hate you, so kind actions instead of spiteful actions, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Ultimately, love leads to action, because if love doesn't involve action, then what is it? It's just words. And we see that in our marriages, in our lives, with our friendships. If love is just a word that we give, then it's just useless. And I think, I wanted to move on to this, but I'll repeat myself later, but, you know, the church is called to be this. And we often think that the church becomes so embedded in society that we get used to the way society does things. But actually, the church is meant to be so countercultural in so many ways. And this is the way, this is one way that it goes against culture, isn't it? Because how can we love people who do these sort of things? How can we love people who do all these atrocities? And not only can, how can we love them, but how can we pray for them? How can we pray that God would turn their hearts to him? But yet we are called to do it as Christians. There's another way that Jesus talks about demonstrating love, and that's demonstrating love to one another in terms of within a family, within the church. Dave had some things up some earlier with some uh, runners and offering support. And ultimately we're meant to be offering encouragement within a church and love within a church. And that is what church is meant to be. But there's a quote by Justin Wilby, the uh, Archbishop of Canterbury, who says, in your walk as a Christian, you're most likely to be hurt by other Christians than anybody else. It's a sad fact, but it's it's something worth kind of understanding and coming to grips with, isn't it? And I'm sure we can all relate to that. There might be people here that you're not necessarily good friends with. There may be people outside in the other churches. But God calls us to action on that. To work on it. To not let it go. To pray for them. To seek things and to actually resolve matters. Maybe there's things that need to happen today when you're having a certain argument with someone or a dislike in the church. And God says, not only are you not allowed to think these thoughts, because often that's where we stop. We think, oh, I thought a bad thought about somebody, and therefore I can move on from here. I can just destroy the thought and it's okay. But Jesus says, no, that's not even true. He goes even further. Not only is it meant to enter your mind, it's not even allowed to enter into your heart, that you're not even allowed to imagine these things about people. And if you have these thoughts towards people, you have to act on it. And that's when it comes to resolution and bringing people together. And maybe there's us today within conflicts, within churches, within meetings that happen, or within all sorts of different things, that we are called to be unified as a body. And that includes working with each other and loving one another. I think the biggest obstacle, personally, when I was researching all this, is, is justice. Because ultimately, we want justice. And we feel like to get justice, we have to do it ourselves rather than leaving it for God. What do I mean by that? I mean like sometimes, like I said earlier about getting revenge. We want to work for our own means and we want to make things happen for ourselves. And it's hard when you're going through adversity and tough time to actually lay it all down and say, you know, God, I'll let you have the last words. I don't need to have it. you may be asking at this point, Jack, what does this have to do with adversity? I agree with what you're saying. Hopefully you do agree. But what does this got to do with adversity? I want to remind you of uh, Matthew 22, 37 to 40, where it talks about the greatest commandments. He said to them, you shall love the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbour as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. In other words, adversity can lead us to a place where we pray for others and as a result it transforms our character and mind more and more into the likeness of Jesus. Love your neighbour, we often hear that saying. We talk about the Good Samaritan. Well, if we love him, it means loving our neighbour even if it means loving your enemy as well. To good to those who hate you. Why? Because ultimately, but why? Because Jesus did it. Jesus did it himself for us. And we become molded more and more into the likeness of Jesus. And I've got some of the next uh, slides. It says, in order to love God truly, we must love others. Or to put it in today's context, to demonstrate our love fully to God, we need to to be loving others fully. That is why it is related to adversity. Because adversity and times and troubles should lead us to a place where we actually pray for others, and by that we become more like God, more like Jesus, more like into His character. Even when we find it hard to love them, we may find it hard to like people, but we are called to love them. So, how do we respond to this? I've got a few questions for you. Do you pray for other people who persecute you? Usually. You. Do you ask God to have mercy on them and not to punish them? Do you ask God to save their souls? Do you have a great concern for them? Are you able to leave justice in the hands of God and not in your own? Let's take a moment just in silence, close our eyes. We all go through different hard times, whether it's through family or whether it's through friends or further afield. And David was writing a psalm in the midst of being persecuted by his own son. And some of us have the hardest troubles through family. And we may be given up on praying or we feel like our prayers aren't answered. We need to remember to to bring them to God. Maybe there's someone in your workplace who you you particularly find irritating. How can you show love to them? How can you show Jesus to them? Maybe it's your children. Maybe it's your wife, your husband. Maybe you're the person causing the the problems and you need to say, I'm sorry, and you need to offer the olive branch. As we keep our heads bowed, let's want to ask the worst sit bands to come on stage. Let's just keep our minds focused for a second on how do we demonstrate our love to people? How do we put love into action rather than just simply words? And is there, per- is there people here that we need to bring before God in prayer? Or maybe... There's something else in the sermon that touched you. Maybe you need to be remembered of things that happened in your past that should give you confidence for today.